2012 was when my book came out with PCAR, and I'd been that was at least a two-year process. Yeah, it might have even been 2009. I think you were doing signs for Trader Joe's at the time. I was. Well, yeah, I don't. I haven't done that in years, but yeah, that's how I was making a living at the time. It seemed like a pretty good gig for an artist, right? Yeah, I mean, for for a while, it was definitely hit a point where it was like, I definitely don't want to do, be doing this much into my 30s, you know, that yeah. kind of job. And it was kind of on shaky ground whether it was going to continue anyways. So at a certain point, I, I just quit because, you know, I hit you one, saw of, those, the, uh, I hit the one of those crossroads where I was like, I need to figure out my life. <laughs> you know? Was that a point when you actually started getting more serious about making your own stuff? I was always serious about that, but I always knew, like, I need some way to make money at yeah. the same time, you know. Well, they're serious, and then there's serious to the point where it's like, this is the thing that I'm going to do now. Yeah. You know, there's a, at a certain point, it's like, it's kind of shit or get off the pot. Yeah. And that was probably like around the time I was turning 30. Yeah. Around the time I was turning 30, and, you know, you definitely, I think that's a, a time for a lot of artists where you kind of look at your life and you're like, well, is yeah. this the thing that I'm really going to pursue? And for me, it was like, I need to, if I'm going to keep doing this for real, I need to figure out a way where it's possible to move forward and living in Los Angeles, you know, it's expensive to live there. I had to figure something out. So I quit my job and started doing like, I was doing a lot of commission drawings. I had some of those lined up to like carry me through for a few months. And then I was building a, a friend of mine was, had been doing storyboards for this one company, just like commercials. And he recommended me for a job with them. And I ended up doing enough work with them that I was able to build up a portfolio to submit to agencies and i've been really lucky that i got on with this agency in la and i do maybe two to three days a week storyboarding for commercials and that's enough to get by and still have lots of free time to do my own thing when you live in a city like you know la or or new york or chicago getting serious about something takes a different form because you still have to continue to do work yeah. in the meantime yeah i mean if i really wanted to like you know i could maybe just uh make lots of mini comics and and drawings and yeah. make $14,000 a year or something and live in some yeah. horrible place in the middle of the country. Not that the middle of the country is a horrible place. I'm from there, but uh, that, <laughs> is, is, I'm from that is an option for artists, that. you know, where you go off and do your own thing and you make very little money and you can kind of get by. I've had periods of my life where I was kind of doing that and yeah. it's a very, I feel like it takes a toll on your soul. Did you give yourself a specific deadline? I'm going to get an office job if this doesn't take or if, or if my, my book doesn't come out. Or No. No. <laughs> you know, I know you're making the floppies. You're doing that stuff with, like, Noah. Yeah. Like, you had stuff in the world. You had the PCAR book. People yeah. were reacting to your work. You knew that this wasn't a lost cause. You get enough things along the way that encourage you to keep going. Yeah. If I just was putting out comics and going to shows and nobody was buying them and nobody was responding to them and then i would have been more likely to have said oh well this isn't going to work for me you know but you get enough things along the way and ultimately you know like i I self-published a couple of comics and then a small publisher kilgore books who are great offered to do the third one and then i started serializing my graphic novel online and then fanographics approached me about doing that so it's like these things yeah. keep carrying you even if you're not making money very yeah. much money from it you're like well this might actually work out in the end cleveland must have kept yeah. you going for a while in just cleveland, from the standpoint yeah. of creative success i mean you were yeah. working with one of the all-time greats of course yeah 
I yeah, I didn't even mention that. But yeah, I was a huge fan of Harvey Picar, and I did this book with him, and he unfortunately died in the middle of it. Yeah, which became a, a whole other issue. But uh, but there was that got nominated for an Eisner Award for that, which is great. And I feel like now I have this new book out. People are. I'm not coming completely fresh to everyone's eyes for yeah. the first time, which helps too, you know. It's a really nice springboard. You're working with somebody. There's a built-in audience there already with, with somebody yeah. like Harvey, right? I mean, people, this is going to sound really crass, but it being his last book or it being the book he was working on. And I mean, definitely the most personal thing he had worked in in some time. He was moving toward, you know, nonfiction. He was doing, he did the Beats book with Ed. Yeah. And, you know, he's working on sort of like some war reporting things like that and you were really working on what was the most harvey thing that he had done the most american splendor like thing he had done in some time yeah it was really kind of like a sprawling look back at his life in a way you know it was like the material from you know and harvey rehashed a lot of material through his life like many artists do sure which i actually don't mind that like i just saw that no, new Noah Baumbach show on uh, Netflix. Yeah. And it's basically him redoing uh, Squid and the Whale in a way. But it's great. You're not the artist that you were when you first wrote it. I mean, you're, you're right. taking you're, it's a completely different perspective. You know, exactly. him doing it in his 30s versus in his 60s. I mean, it's going to inherently yeah. be a very different book. So Harvey was, like, looking for a book to, to get me to do. And he had, like, different publishers. Like, he was working with Vertigo and stuff. And they were like, ah, we don't want... Because he, he wanted me to illustrate a book, but Vertigo didn't want me to illustrate a book because yeah. no one knew who I was. Yeah. They wanted some, like, superhero artist to do it. Yeah. And then somehow, the, and there were books I didn't really want to do anyways. Like you said, he was doing, like, political things. Yeah. And I would have done it, but somehow that just kind of magically came together. Yeah. It worked out well. You, know. I mean, you must have learned a lot from him in the process, although he had his very idiosyncratic way of working i don't know how many of those how many of those lessons you learn are actually applicable to the process of making a graphic novel yeah i think there's just a mainly a feeling to his work that's yeah. kind of hard to explain because yeah. a lot of people do have done that thing that seems very simple to do and i don't like the a lot of those comics at all but yeah. for whatever reason some of those Picar stories are magical i don't know what it is exactly it's hard to to pick apart I mean, to me, the the best Picar stuff is the collaboration with him and Crumb, which I sure. think are some of the greatest comics ever. I don't know. Yeah. There's something magical at that specific point of time. Because Crumb lived in Cleveland, too, when he was illustrating those stories. There was just this life to them. I'm thinking mainly of one of my favorite comics ever is the one he wrote about his addiction to collecting records and yeah. stealing records from the... Yeah. I don't know what it is about those, but... It seems like it's such an easy thing to like to do if you want to do like a Picard type story, but it's very easy to make it very bad. You know, you mentioned Crumb is the best example, but you know, were you talking about like several decades of some of the best underground artists doing this work with him? I mean, that's a pretty, it's a ridiculously high bar for your first book. Yeah, was that a concern? Your style's obviously evolved since then, but it's it's hard to look at your stuff and not see the Crumb influence. I mean, it's clearly sure. it's clearly there. Yeah, I mean, Crumb was definitely the biggest influence on me starting out. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think the bigger concern for me was because I felt like I was I actually did have confidence, like I was a good artist to be doing yeah. that book. So I had confidence in that way. Um, but 
more of the concern is being sort of how do I get I don't want to distance myself from it now but I don't want to be just known as like yeah. a guy that illustrated a Harvey Picard book either yeah. you know or comes just out of like the crumb school of cartooning because I feel like that's a danger that people can fall into where you're you just kind of known as a subset of a genre well crumb is like that guy though crumb is yeah. that guy who for you know like at least a decade and a half maybe two decades it's like saying you sound like craft or craft work is a genre robert crumb was a genre of comics all of these people coming out of underground comics looked like his stuff because it was so iconic and so well defined and so inextricable from that early underground comics movement mm-hmm. that it was hard to get away from yeah there's something about when you look at those comics, they're just, like, alive on the page somehow. Yeah. Like everything yeah. he draws is just, like, yeah. I don't know what it... And there's a lot of people that have done similar work that just, uh, it just kind of sits flat, even though it's similar. Yeah. There's something coming out of his brain that, that just springs to life somehow, which is, I think is the main thing that draws me to his work. You watch that Terry Zweigoff movie, and you're like, oh, of course. Like, of sure. course this is the guy. Of course his mind is in eight different places at once, and... Yeah, And he does capture that really well on the page in a way that, you know, few have since. But when you get that comparison early on, when every single review is like, hey, it looks like Crumb, do you actively have to work against that? Do you have to go out of your way to continue to develop your style from there? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, I've been happy, like the reviews I've gotten, Cartoon Clouds, I've been happy that there hasn't been much mention of that. Um, but I don't want to like totally work against it because part of what I what I love about that that style is that it, like I was saying, I like work that's like pops off the page. Like Chester Brown is another big influence, yeah. or uh, Dave Cooper. These guys who mostly work in black and white and like have real like high contrast shadows. And and I love stuff like Chris Ware too, but it's not necessarily the thing I do, you know. Yeah. So I'm definitely working within a tradition of of drawing, and so you know, I could say yes, I'm trying to just like, not draw this way, but. You don't really have that much of a choice. In the yeah. End. <laughs> yeah. So, some people do actively attempt to develop sure. a style. Anyway, yeah, I'm doing like more like watercolor stuff now, but yeah. it doesn't end up looking that much different. Ultimately, it's just the way I draw, yeah. and you kind of just have to let that happen. I look at someone like Chris Ware, the difference between his early work and what he's doing now, and obviously Chris Ware is one of the great geniuses of the form, yeah. but he also seems like somebody who made a very concerted effort to develop a style. Yeah. You didn't really find yourself going out of your way to do that. You knew you could draw, and you've just been drawing since. I mean, I suppose style develops over time, but I've always been very interested in this idea of how much of it is artifice, how much of it is conscious, how much of it is you trying to really develop something that's distinct, and how much of it just kind of happens naturally. I think uh, a lot of the the way artists mature over time is you, you figure out what you can leave out is the big thing. So a lot, you'll see a lot of early work that's just covered in lines everywhere. Yeah. And my work's still covered in lines, but it's it's gained a clarity I think I didn't have before. And you figure out just ways just to organize information on the page. I mean, for me, it's like I just want it to be very readable, you know? Like, I don't want it to be... There's some t- comics you just, like, look at the page and you're like, God, my eyes hurt. I can't yeah. even look at this, you know? Like, yeah. I don't want to read the first sentence because it just looks like a... It's a little utilitarian then, in a sense. Yeah, like, I, I want it to be... It's a balancing point between this is an interesting drawing and it's also a very readable drawing yeah. that I that my eye can move through. You know, I can move from panel to panel in a rhythmic way, and it's pleasing to to read. And you want to just keep yeah. flipping the pages. It's not like you know, there's some artists who are who are great artists that are maybe not 
great for cartooning because they're just kind of weighing down the page, I feel like, with information sometimes. But that's the struggle, right, is the ephemera of it all, of the amount of time it takes to create something versus the amount of time it takes to consume something. Don't you want people to sort of linger and, and, well, and spend to, time? Yeah, yeah. I want people to read through the book and then linger yeah. afterwards. Go back yeah. and figure out things they didn't see in the first place. A lot of my favorite books are that way. You know, like I always think of like Louis Riel is a book that I enjoyed reading it. I don't necessarily think of the story too much any, yeah. at the, anymore. I liked it when I read it, but I yeah. pull that book off the shelf like once every couple of weeks just yeah. to look at it, you know? It's an interesting question of what sticks with you mm-hmm. when you're done reading a comic. Sorry, Chris, Chris Ware is fresh on my mind because I interviewed him this morning, but we talked about this a little bit. Of He basically told me that he sees artwork in a comic as being in service of the storytelling for similar reasons, mm-hmm. for the reason of the amount of time it, it takes for you to complete a page. But I... And this is coming from somebody who's a writer who can't draw to save his life. But I do think that for the most part, the things that really stick with you in a comic are the visuals, right? I mean, I think about like Black Hole, right? Yeah. I couldn't tell you the intricacies of the dialogue or even a lot of the storyline. But those visuals, like that's why he's a brilliant artist, because there's a couple of things you can point out that just stay with you well after the book's done. Yeah. And it's, I think it's hard for some people to talk about, too, because... You don't necessarily know what the effect the art is having on you in a conscious way. You know, it's sort of a where you can specifically talk. You know, a lot of people who write about comics, too, it's, I think it's easier for them to write about because they're writers. It's easier for them to write about the writing of the comic oh, absolutely. without even maybe being conscious of the way that the artwork affected yeah. their experience of the book. But to me, it's at bare minimum 50-50, you know, of yeah. the story and the art. And there's also, you know, there's... I hear arguments a lot about in, in comics that, oh, it's all about the story. It's all serves as the story. Chris Ward talks about this all the time. And he has a very sort of very specific way he, uh, philosophy on comics. And yeah. That Ivan Bernetti book about cartooning sort of just, disti- I feel like distilled it all down into like its most purest form, the way yeah. those guys think about comics. And I've learned a lot from that too. But I think people can take that too far too, you know? Like, I love Ivan Brunetti, but I like the, yeah. like, mid-period Ivan Brunetti more than... Yeah. A lot of people are like, you know, I'm, I'm paring everything down, so it's just story. Story, like, well, yeah, but then you kind of crossed a line into the art's not as interesting to me anymore. Some people, maybe it is. The power of comics is whatever the intersection between the two is. Yeah. You can't let either one fall by the wayside too much. Yeah. And they need to work together. I mean, there's that's the upside of being the writer and artist on the book. Oh, for sure. Is you're able to... I mean, you're probably thinking, as you're scripting out, you're probably thinking visually as far as, like, how the art's going to look on the page. And often an idea will just start as, like, a visual thing. You'd be like, why is this... I'm working on some drawings now, and I'm like... I'm just like, why do I want to draw this thing? I have no idea why I want to draw this thing. Yeah. But that's a good sign that I should draw it and figure out what it means later. And a story might develop out of that. I think that's a good way to approach things in general. Like, why? There's something, like, that keeps running through my brain... I should write that down. I don't know what it means. I don't know why. The new book, it's not a fantasy book. You know, no. you're not drawing unicorns. You're drawing college students. You're drawing yeah, sort yeah. of people talking. It's maybe, if you had set out to make the most visually interesting book possible, you probably would have arrived at a different place than you did with this book. Yeah, that's true. This is a much more of a writerly book, I yeah. guess. <laughs> what was the hook? What made you want to focus on this as your first standalone graphic novel yeah I mean, I'd, I'd had some false starts of things that were like a little more conceptual but i felt like if I, or this is going to be my first long form graphic novel it's 160 pages like at a certain point i was like i just need to do something that's more 
directly related to, related yeah. to my experience. If you're going to commit yourself to something for that At amount of time. For the first one. Yeah. You know, if it, and I feel like that's, you'll see a lot of artists earlier in their career, their yeah. first book will be a very personal, semi-autobiographical thing. And you kind of learn how to tell a story. And, and it's semi-autobiographical. Yeah. It's not that autobiographical because it's just easier to, to draw from your experience in that way. But I also try to to make it somewhat of a universal story. It's not just you a get really gazing. Uh, yeah, it's easy to get into navel gazy territory when yeah. you're talking about a book like that. It's gotten some criticism for that too. I've I've always liked those types of stories, and I, I think at the time too, I was I remember really liking Lena Dunham's first movie, uh, Tiny Furniture, Tiny, yeah, yeah. which was th- and Francis Ha, things like that. Those cut types of stories, and those types of stories have existed for forever on paper it's a very slight story yeah i mean it's and it's a young person sort of being thrown out into the world kind of trying to have to figure their shit out that's kind of what it's about mind follows these four characters so it's in in the tradition of that kind of story and then and i felt like i could do that kind of story fairly easily you're living it in comparison yeah exactly this book was your attempt to try to figure out what the next step forward was yeah and i think it's also one of those things like you hear pete bag talk about how he's always writing, like the Buddy Bradley stuff is like him talking about himself 10 years ago. He needed 10 years to like yeah. sort out what was actually happening during that time. And that's yeah. sort of what it was for me too. It's yeah. the hold steady problem. The whole what? The hold steady problem. Like yeah. all the hold steady songs are about right. what they were doing in their 20s, yeah. but it, you can't contextualize it while you're going through it. Exactly. The biggest problem with that is that everything, especially when you're younger and you haven't really dealt with as much like real adversity in your life if you come from a place of privilege and you know your life has been relatively easy and you maybe haven't dealt with as much death in your life and like these real problems it's you start ascribing a lot more value to everything you do Every, everything you do feels like life and death or the end of the world oh, yeah. and that's when you start hedging way too much into naval gazy territory yeah for sure yeah and I was aware of that danger, too, yeah. you know? It's kind of a weird time for this book to come out, too, yeah. <laughs> I think, because things are so, like, politically heated. And, you know, so the, most of the criticism of the book so far has been like, oh, do we need another one of these fucking books about a guy figuring out? And I get that, but... How long were you kicking the story around before you actually started to sit down and write it? I initially started it in 2013, and then I did, like, 34 pages and then kind of took a break and did another issue in my comic blind spot. And that was kind of around the time, too, where... I had to figure out my work situation. So I ended up taking like a year and a half or so where I barely made comics at all. So I could figure out how to survive going forward. And then at a certain point, Gary Groth wrote me an email. I was like, because I had been sending fanographics, my comics over the years. And I ended up having a conversation with Gary Groth at SPX one year. And then he just sent me an email one day. He's like, you want to do that book? And that kind of forced me. To be like, yeah, yeah, obviously. So between like 2015, June 2015, 2017, three quarters of the book was done. So that there, there is a noticeable shift, I think, from that first 34 pages and the rest of the book. It's not like I, I quit drawing. I yeah. drawing all the time for work and other things. And you also just kind of figuring out storytelling more too. So to me, when I look back at it, and I had, I had to go back and do a lot of editing in the beginning yeah. of the book. Uh, there's a shift in the pacing and the, I think I just figured out how to tell a story much better. There's going to be a bit of that regardless when you're working on a longer book, mm-hmm. especially when it's your first one. Yeah. You're going to invariably be a different totally. artist and storyteller from beginning to the end, but you feel like having sort of that window of time was helpful in turning it into a better book? Well, I think I just learned more about writing and 
The drawing always just like slowly incrementally yeah. gets better too if you keep doing it. But it's it is helpful to to walk away from something for a little while. Yeah. And to see what you've been working on. Also, when I started it, I didn't know where it was going really, and the whole yeah. thing was based on the main protagonist Seth, and I was just going to keep that was yeah. going to be the book. And over that time, you know, and I also feel like I watched a lot of good television <laughs> shows, uh, like Mad Men, and uh, yeah. I finally got around to watching The Wire, uh-huh. and, and I, I got interested in that idea of the way... That Actions and consequences. and Yeah, yeah. And you have several character stories uh, kind of going in and out. Yeah. So you'll have, you know, you'll, you'll be in one person's story, you flip the page, and you're in another person's story. But you're always leaving these, like, open threads throughout, so you're always wanting to, like, get back to, like, oh, what's going to happen with that yeah. guy, you know? So that sort of structure. Pacing is really important. Yeah. And that's what those shows do really well. These arcs that play out of the course of a season or multiple seasons. Yeah. And that's the big shift. Aside from just the amount of time and that it takes to do something, the, the big shift between working on a smaller work and a graphic novel or a novel is figuring out how to, how to tell a story over that amount of time. A really good TV show is good at holding stuff back, and that's a lesson that you have to learn yeah. as a writer that, that you know, you're not going to have the payoff of this consequence happening yeah. three pages from now necessarily. But you also have to find a way to make those scenes interesting and not just... To keep people engaged. Yeah, because you always have to think, if I'm coming this at this and know nothing what this is about, like, why am I reading this? Yeah. Why the fuck am I reading this yeah. comic by another asshole? <laughs> you know, like... For those first, um, like, what was it, you say 30 pages? I was very conscious of that, yeah. 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 You still felt coming back to it, that was a solid enough foundation. I mean, obviously, like you said, you did some editing, trim some stuff... But it was largely intact. Yeah. It was good enough. Yeah. I cringe a bit when I read the beginning of the book, but um, and I'm fairly comfortable with it after okay. that point, you know. I, I always cringe a bit when I look at my work, yeah. go through my work. But, I, you know, I hadn't read it in a while, and then when it was printed, they sent me a copy, and I read through it, and I was fairly yeah. okay with it, yeah. <laughs> you know. I felt like it, it had a good flow to it, but that, and when I look at it now, I'll always skip past you're always going to see yeah your mistakes and sure. things that you could have spent more time on have you started working on another one where, where are you at well i'm writing stuff and it's all kind of that process where you're just writing taking a lot of notes and i have different yeah you know i have my iphone and i have a voice memo thing so it's sort of in that phase right now and i have a visual style i'm kind of developing for it um, oh you're so you're trying to do something yeah, it's going to be a color, watercolor and yeah. ink. I did some comics for The Believer that people may have seen that are in that style. And it's sort of similar in the sense that it's following these different characters and their traje- trajectories, but yeah. people later in life. And um, But I, I do want to push the visual side of things more with this. I'm sort of like all taking place in this fictional city. And I, for whatever reason, I have this like obsession of drawing like weird buildings and architecture and stuff. Yeah. And that's sort of a thing that I want to like really present in this book somehow. One of the things about drawing a book like that is the amount of time you're going to have to spend drawing the same thing over and over again. So mm-hmm. you you want to find something that you want to draw over and over again. Yeah. I know I kind of want the visuals to push the narrative more in this one too, yeah. you know, like I think it'll be a bigger size book. So yeah, I don't know. It's too early to really give a good summation of what it's no, going to no, be. And I, and I don't even know exactly what it's yeah. going to be yet, but I think it'll have a similar feeling as Cartoon Clouds does, but it'll be hopefully, you know, another another step beyond, a little more conceptual, a little more. I think the structure will be kind of cut up, cut up in pieces more, uh, almost like a collection of short stories, but it all sort of holds together in some way. Yeah, I'm interested in that kind of structure 
thing. Uh, Obviously, having this first book out in the world, mm-hmm. it's a pretty solid foundation. I mean, you feel like you know what you're doing now as far as writing a graphic Much novel. Much more so than I did. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's also kind of proving proving to yourself that you can do it. Like, yeah. You, like, there's times when you're, like, three quarters of the way through a big project where you're like, oh, my God, is this ever end, you know? Yeah. Especially with my laborious drawing style. It just... There's times where I'd be spending a week on a page or one page or whatever, you know. As you've tightened things up and, and you know, tried to cut the excess fat and, in a sense, a little more minimalist, has that made you faster? No. No. <laughs> you labor over the things that you're not including. Getting slower, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so there's less ink on the page, but it, you took more time because you were editing yourself. Well, yeah, I was thinking about this recently, actually. I think the thing that takes the most time is uh, body language because it's the most, it's so important. You and don't it's even, subtle. Yeah, and very subtle. So if someone's like shoulder is a little yeah. off, it, it's like they're they have a whole different expression in a way, you know. Where do you learn that? And obviously, like there's some amount of just like dealing with people in life, but there are cues. I'm like, do you read a book about body language to figure that out? Uh, one thing I found is working ge- like starting very gesturally, and it's a, sort of a su- unconscious thing. Like, yeah, if I just like this person's sitting this way or whatever, yeah, and you sketch it out real quick. Then you kind of capture it. You can kind of capture it. Your mind just knows what it is. Whereas if you're just like, I'm laboring this out, and here's where the collarbone goes, and here's the structure, then you might end up with like a real stiff, weird-looking figure. And I'll still end up with these things that I have to go back and white out. And, I mean, that's the thing that, if you look at the original pages of Cartoon Clouds, it's just covered in whiteout, mainly for that reason. Like, yeah, just the body language doesn't quite look right on paper, so yeah. you have to go and re- readjust the body yeah. part. How much are you sketching it out ahead of time, and how much of it is just it's on the pages itself? Cartoon Clouds, I got into this thing where I was, at a certain point, I had been doing so much whiting out on the page that I started sketching it out on another piece of paper yeah. with like blue pencil and then red pencil on top of that, and then I traced that. And I don't want to do that again. Yeah. Now what I'm doing is I'm doing blue and red pencil again and then doing it all on the same page. I like, I really like the look of seeing that pencil underneath it in a way. Like when you watercolor over it, a lot of it disappears, but it has this like electric energy underneath it when you leave it there. Since you don't really have the reference, is that, can, is that a problem? You don't have something you can look at off the page? No, because I ran into problems too when you when you uh, trace something on a light table. These are the things, especially you know, as as a writer, when occur to me. But in a way, I mean, obviously you're you're learning like storytelling and narrative and all these pacing things like that. But then there's all these little pragmatic issues of actually sitting down and do the work that don't even occur to you until you actually have to sit down and do the yeah. work. I think that's also one of those things too where you don't where a lot of people won't even know how that's affecting their experience of the book. Yeah. But it definitely does, you know. As far as the amount of time it took to work on something or No, just I mean just mean as far as the way a reader is experiencing the book. Someone coming to a book, not knowing anything about it, they read it, they like it or not. Yeah. I think that is a the way uh people characters are drawn has a big effect on the way someone perceives the book, but they might not be aware of that that thing. But you want to create something that somebody can come to and just appreciate without knowing who you are or or what you did or what your intention was and just have like an enjoyable reading experience. And part of that is making, like we said earlier, like making the art kind of utilitarian and making the art in service of the text and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I want I want somebody to be able to read the first two pages and be like, I want to keep going. I always think of uh, the original version of The Office. I remember somebody was like, all right, we're going to watch this show. And I was saw the cover. I'm like, I don't want to watch this show. Some British thing about people in an office is yeah. going to be terrible. And within 
10 minutes, I'm like, this is the greatest show I've ever yeah. seen in my life. You know, like, because it, he starts the thing with this just hilarious scene. Like, you know, like anything else, like, if you're going to give a speech, start with a joke. You know, like, yeah. give me something that's going to carry me, makes yeah. me want to keep going with this thing. That's kind of the irony of this, of this book specifically is you feel better maybe about the end mm-hmm. of it, about what it developed into. But I was very conscious of that, too, yeah. when I started. Early on. Like, I think the first scene in the book is like a gag basically yeah. you know like i wanted it to start with something funny that people could you know read the read through the first few pages people might decide if they like it or not at that point you know but hopefully hopefully there's some entertainment value right off the bat there you go that's joseph Rebnett. joseph is someone whose work i've been following for some time since the early days when he doing some online work with Harvey Pekar over at the Pekar Project. Obviously, he's been working quite a bit since then. He did the, the book Cleveland with Pekar and the ongoing floppy wine spot. But uh, I've been waiting for some time for his debut graphic novel, Cartoon Clouds, that's out now on Fantagraphics. A very, very talented artist. Thanks so much, Tim, for taking the time to do that. Thanks to Jack at Fantagraphics for helping set that up. Thanks to Gabe at Cab for uh, giving us a, a place to speak at the show. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support RIYL. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Tumblr, that's rylcast.tumblr.com. Send us uh, an email, that's uh, rylcast at gmail.com. Easiest way to support the show is to rate us over on iTunes, wherever we get your podcasts. Uh, if you got a couple bucks to send our way, we would be very grateful over on our Patreon. Uh, we are essentially losing money doing the show right now, so that's uh, every little bit helps. Thanks so much, and I think that's about it for this week. So stick around because we'll be back this time next week with another episode of RYL.